This episode of From the Rookery End is brought to you by Bet365. Football is back and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last and anytime goal stores. With over 45 million members it's the world's favourite online betting company. With games coming thick and fast almost every day with the Bet365 Bet Builder you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. If you can't watch all the games live with Bet365 Match Live feature you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded via the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to From the Recruiting. My name is John. With me today is Mike. Feeling a little bit better. Hello, John. Well, it's not hard to be a little bit better, Mike. You were in a very, <laughs> very bad place. But thank you so much to everybody who who listened to the podcast we put out after the Southampton game. It's clear, Mike, from, from many, many people who tweeted and sent messages, you sort of were saying what they were feeling. I suppose it's, it's a nice, hopefully, podcast that sort of, as we've always do with, with From the Weekend, is to tell our story as Watford fans about what is happening and what we're feeling like and tell our story. Uh, and that was a particularly bad moment and well we're it's still not over quite yet the whole story we'll talk about in a minute but we will talk about it with the Watford correspondent for The Athletic Mr Adam Leventhal good morning Adam good morning how's it going very good well well me fine Watford well not quite (laughs) let's talk about that quickly Mike we talked about the the initial impact and the initial feelings all the Watford fans had about Andre Gray's birthday party uh, and the fact that he shared it with the world uh, via uh, Instagram which caused Quite a lot of problems uh, for Watford uh, and quite a lot of uh, hurt for the fans. Uh, we got an apology. It was called an apology. Would you take it as an apology? Well, look, <clears throat> my dad always taught me to always uh, assume positive intent, and I try and live my life by that. And it, you know, it was a, an apology, certainly in name. Uh, interesting that it was on Instagram, as uh, where the the original story and issues broke there was a lot of consternation i think on social media wasn't there about the uh, about the the content of that apology and how well thought out it was it seemed to sort of hint that the fact that the the party wasn't a late night event seemed to sort of not excuse it but mitigate against we've all been on a day long bender and started drinking <laughs> at lunchtime <laughs> what are you suggesting um, i mean my personal feeling is I, I was so exhausted by the weekend's events um as as those that listen to the pod will 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 have heard probably in my voice that i i, I was kind of done with it i didn't really have the emotional energy to to compute it but i did see that there was a bit of a backlash to it and and i could understand why personally i i just had to let it go because i didn't have anything left in the tank to examine it if you like but it didn't seem great to me it didn't seem like it had much help shaping the message didn't really seem like he he fully understood it i think as a supporter, I'm, I need to move on, um, but I don't know what you guys what you guys thought of it. Well, Adam, you were you know very much the the man who who highlighted and, and broke the story from what you saw on Andre Gray's uh, Instagram. I don't know if that's what you have to do to be a hardcore journalist. Uh, if you have to be on all the footballers' Instagrams on a Saturday <laughs> you, night, you definitely do. You have to. <laughs> um, you have to. But from your point of view, being so close to it and looked at it in so much detail, how have you found it over the last week? 
uh, and even with this apology? First and foremost, if you if you look at the actual positioning of the, of the party, it was it was misplaced. But I think, and this is this is something that is very important to to highlight. I think picking up on what Mike said about uh, Andre Gray's apology almost sticking a flag in a perception that was out there that it was a late night party. I'm not sure how many publications put out that it was a late night party or said that there was any sort of debauchery or alcohol involved or there was any curfews broken. I don't think anyone did that. I certainly didn't. The initial story was, look, this has happened. We need to highlight this, mainly down to the fact that it's a breach of lockdown protocol they shouldn't have been gathering and it was highlighting the fact that it was a gathering there was no images of it being indoors it was outside let's be brutally honest there's a lot of people in this country that think that the whole sort of lockdown um, messaging from the government has been muddied and muddled from the point that certain thing happened involving a certain part of the northeast and there are, there are certain rules that you think, well, maybe we should be more relaxed about things. And I don't think what was going on was particularly, particularly bad in the grand scheme of things. But the point is, it shouldn't have been happening, especially for Premier League footballers. They're in this hermetically sealed hygiene bubble and they should have known better. And I think we all know that. The fact of sort of picking up on it, highlighting it and then waiting for the club to respond I think was the, was the main thing to do. And obviously it had an impact in the game against Southampton. You, you withdraw three players at a time when you were preparing for the game. You know, you're then calling in Peñaranda, you're calling in João Pedro, you're preparing them. The players that were at the training ground on Saturday uh, getting ready for the game uh, would have been thinking about that rather than about the game. I know footballers can sort of channel their thoughts and can process things at times better than we maybe think but it would have been a distraction and coming back to the the whole sort of testing side of things that party happened the evening after they'd been tested that morning we only know that they were tested that morning because when we were all doing our press conference uh, that morning on the Friday before the game against Southampton uh, Nigel Pearson was delayed because the the squad and the staff were, were going through their testing. So we just found that out by chance. It clearly highlighted a sort of a, a disregard or a naivety in relation to what the players should have been doing. And I just think from that point, it was really, really disappointing. And then it, rather than it being used as a galvanising force, it looked as if it was a, a real spanner in the works ahead of a pivotal game against Southampton. And that's that's what really, 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 really is really disappointing <laughs> about the whole the whole episode. Now, we hope that this will just be that one game where this has a sort of impact on it. Um, the trouble is, uh, and the worry, I suppose, what for fan is that if the performances don't get better, that we are all thinking this was the problem, this was the reason. We'll have to wait and see what happens uh, in the upcoming games against Chelsea, Norwich, Newcastle and West Ham. Let's not forget that, that, that they have played three games in eight days off the back of three months out and not playing. And I know other clubs have had to deal with it. Some clubs have dealt with it better than others. Um, but I think that that is worth mentioning in mitigation and the sort of the intent was to try and play your best players 
try and keep some sort of consistency of selection. Treat it like you're sort of all in it together, lads. Come on, we won't rotate it too much. We can get through this and then we've got a week off ahead of Chelsea. So I think, you know, that there was, there were good intentions, but I think they just looked a bit leggy, to be honest, against, against Southampton and especially, you know, up top with Troy Deeney, a few other players. They just, they just didn't really, um, appear to be at it for a game that they knew they had to be on their toes because Southampton are almost the antithesis to to what Watford are at the moment, full of bite and fizz and and movement. So it was a difficult start, made even more difficult by that incident. From the rookery end... Adam, uh, on your writing on The Athletic, which if you would like to get a 30-day free trial, you can go to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end, where you can sign up, uh, see all the writings of Adam, uh, as well as all of the journalists uh, who are part of The Athletic's team. Also, if you uh, end up subscribing, you can get from the Rookery End podcast absolutely ad-free via The Athletic app. So, lots of reasons to go and have a look at theathletic.com forward slash rookery end. But you've had a couple of chats with a few people, Adam. Firstly, we had a good chat with, with Craig Dawson. I don't feel I know anything about Craig Dawson in terms of what he's like as a person, if I met him in the pub. I've got no feelings towards it. Lots of the players I do. Some of them I definitely don't want to go to the pub with. Others I think, oh, you'd be lovely to chat to in the pub. But what was he like when you when you met him? What's he like as a, as a, as a person? First thing I should say is we were originally going to do it via Zoom, so I could have looked at his face whilst we were talking. Um, but that actually got downgraded due to some technical difficulties. Um, so we actually just had a phone call, but it was actually really nice. Um, and he came across really well, admittedly him, himself very, very uh, shy on the whole. Um, but he's a, a completely different animal when he goes on the football pitch. And it was good to find out a little bit more about his early days, starting off in Rochdale when he'd had a few setbacks and had, you know, had a trial with um, Man City, had actually sort of almost gone through and, and was going to start his career at Rochdale, but got denied the, the opportunity. And he was just sort of looking around and thinking, oh, maybe football might not be for me. And he was working in a pub, a, a bit of a random sort of uh, inclusion into the story is is that the the son of the controversial comedian um, Bernard Manning, who is also called Bernard, was the chairman of Radcliffe Borough, and he would come into the pub on a regular basis. His son Ben was um, one of Craig's friends at school, so he'd sort of seen him around. And uh, Dawson was playing for a club called Rochdale St Clements. Uh, he was trying to persuade him to come and play for Radcliffe Borough. So he eventually did. It was then that his career really sort of caught light because he played very well. He was then spotted by West Brom scouts. Within two years, he was playing for them. Then he was playing in the Olympics um, and playing in the Premier League. And uh, yeah, after that, it all seemed to all seemed to go well. But it was interesting finding out about sort of him as a person that, yeah, whilst he was shy... Because of his upbringing, playing sort of adult football, he'd been dragged along by his brother, that he sort of got a, a, a school of hard knocks sort of uh, upbringing. <laughs> There's one sort of story in the piece, which I, I won't ruin for you, but it's um, it's quite interesting in terms of one of his sort of initiations on the football pitch involving his um, his own eye and another player, which was, um, it sounds, it's, it was pretty gruesome, but you can see that now. And that's why he's got that nickname from Ben Foster of, of, of Animal, that he is, he's all in 
when he's on the football pitch sometimes and in recent weeks we've seen the good but we've also seen the, the bad of him being all in I think sometimes he does overcommit doesn't he and he, he does get his timings wrong and sometimes yeah. he does sort of switch off a little bit and that it, you can't do that in the Premier League right. and he was you know obviously very good at West Brom for a, for a long period of time and I think as a body of work over the course of this season I think that the jury is sort of still is still out on whether he he can cut it on a regular basis in the in the Premier League but but aside from that it was very nice to talk to him. You, meant, you mentioned the, the jury's out, Adam. And by the way, but some real comedy pedigree there, isn't there, with Dawson and uh, Manning? Um, <laughs> but um, you mentioned the jury's still out, and there's one one thing in the piece, Adam, that really I sort of slapped myself on the wrist because it's a it's a thing about Craig Dawson that's uh, that's been hiding in plain sight, really, and perhaps one of the reasons that that the Pozzos decided to sign him over the summer when Watford supporters were crying out for a, a new defender and perhaps thought that Craig Dawson wasn't the answer, you know, coming from a side who'd been been relegated. But, of course, he's a goal-scoring defender as well, isn't he? And, he, and you mentioned in the piece that his his goal against Leicester puts him into the top five of, of defenders in the Premier League for, for goal-scoring that, that are currently playing. And I wonder whether that's been a was the reason really that, that they decided to go for him in the end and why perhaps it feels like it hasn't necessarily worked because he ha- he's been in and out of the in and out of the side you, you mentioned that in the piece as well and some of the thinking behind that but the fact that he hasn't had that real long run in the team hasn't managed to, to get those goals so perhaps hasn't hasn't delivered on why he was through no fault of his own necessarily but he hasn't really delivered on on why he was bought I think that that was part of the, the process they wanted someone that could add to um, you know the attacking qualities of the side especially for corners and he'd done it for, for West Brom and he's you know he's scored I think he's up to 13 now and um, yeah as you say he's he's sort of high on the list of, of goal scoring defenders but I suppose if you look at it in his early early days playing in the side obviously that was under Javi it was a very difficult time people were thinking right well if he's the answer then I don't think you've got it right because he he had a bit of a shaky start, didn't he? Mm-hmm. In that first game, I think against Brighton, he was yeah he 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 gave the ball away a couple of times, and it was it just didn't didn't go to plan. So he, he never right from the start had any credit in the bank. But he was getting into situations where he was winning headers at corners. I remember a, a chance that he had up at Goodison Park, and that header went over. He was sort of doing what he was supposed to be doing. It's just he wasn't really getting the rub of the green. And even up at Burnley, he had you know had that header that at least he he was he's now sort of thinking, oh, I've got my goal. I can now you know maybe maybe score more. But I think maybe that's his that's his forte rather than um, his defending at the moment. And that he can be good. We saw it against Leicester. I don't think it was you know, a faultless performance against Leicester. I think there were a few moments where he got away with things. But I think it's just the consistency, isn't it? And that's what we need. At the back, we've really lacked it in terms of selection, but also in terms of performance of individuals as well. So he can score, he can, we've seen it, but I think we need we need a lot more. And I think it, it does just go back to, to the recruitment that maybe we needed someone who was going to be a more natural leader. You know, talking about it in the piece, he, he's shy, he's not, he's not a massive leader. Craig Cathcart, very similar sort of person, sort of character. Um, Cabaselle, very similar again. So there's not a, a you know, a, a leader in that back line. And I think that's what's, that's what's been missing all season. I think you're right. The thing you said there, Adam, you said the answer. 
I think what Watford fans wanted was the mm. answer to our problems. Yeah. He didn't add to the problems, but he didn't solve any of the problems. Yeah. And that the whole recruitment process that we've had over many years now, where that sort of central two centre-back pairing or whatever it is, the, the team you need to, to cover that in a Premier League season, just hasn't been even incrementally uh, improved. Um, the other major interview you did with, 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 with lovely Javi, uh, mm. who, you know, he left in such a... A, a bad way um, and I think it was definitely for what many Watford fans it was the the right time to go things weren't going very well and hadn't done for a while uh, particularly the end of last season and the beginning of this season uh, is he doing all right <laughs> yeah he is it was good to catch up with him and it was very very sort of similar to how we remember him very sort of um, measured in what he says very considered, very fair, very balanced. There's a kindness that sort of shines through from everything that he says. I don't think he does anything with with malice. I mean, we've seen him, you know, on the training pitch, uh, especially in pre-season. He was trying to sort of impress on the squad that he uh, that they needed to improve after the end of last season and stuff like that. So he can be tough when he needs to be. The main thing that came through was the the ruthlessness, and we've talked about, you know, Pozzo's ruthlessness throughout this season and you know in, in previous years as well um that how he actually lost his job it just just didn't really feel right no. um and I think that that's the the thing that we you know kick off with in the piece just talking about the fact that he found out via his agent and that may well have been circumstantial it might have been that you know Pozzo or whoever made the you know that call called his agent first and his agent passed it on to him and there had been some intention for him to sit down over a desk and, and talk about it. But just it just didn't feel very right. And also we knew, and this is another interview that I did earlier on for The Athletic um, earlier on this year, Kiko Sanchez Flores had you know been approached around the time of the West Ham game. We know that Watford had two games after that against Coventry and then against Newcastle. So the writing was on the wall. It's just that Javi wasn't privy to looking at that wall. And I think it was just a, a little bit unfair that he had that week of the international break preparing the team for what would be the next game, which was against um, Arsenal. Went all the way up until Friday, said goodbye to, to the players. He thought he was going to see them on Monday. Then, you know, this happened and he got the he got the sack and never saw the players again. And he wanted to sort of, it reminds me a bit of that, you know, that it's a meme, isn't it? Or a GIF, a GIF or a meme or whatever it is on Twitter of um, Homer Simpson backing into the hedge <laughs> and just sort of fading away. And that's what he wanted to do because he thought, right, I'm not going to be disruptive. Obviously, there were some things that needed to be sorted out contractually with the football club. So he wasn't going to come out and you know, all guns blazing sort of take them down as he was as he was sort of falling to the floor. But he, he wanted to fade away and didn't want to make too much noise. And I think that speaks to um, his his sort of honour and integrity. And I think that that's something that a lot of people will remember about Javi Gracia, even though it didn't end well and the cup final was was disappointing. He He tried his best and he... I think he did a he did a pretty good job when you put it into the context of the remainder of of this season. Really, the little bit I sort of took away from it, it felt a little bit like you know he he knows the pot size, he knows he could be re-employed at any any moment, um, but it almost felt a little bit like he after the, the FA Cup final put his his head in the sand by saying it's fine, we'll move on, we'll get better. He didn't seem to be addressing and you know hitting and confronting what was wrong with Watford I don't know if it's the way that he just talked about it to you but it's almost like that's what you 
wanted to hear from a man who had lost 6-0 in an FA Cup final. Just having some, taken some time to reflect on on what happened and what's happened, what's what's transpired this year as well and just taking into account. And I think what the when the important thing that I think he said in the in the piece is not a quality problem, it was it was a time problem and I think mm. there's no you can't change all those players. And you can't argue that the players there were good enough because they were in with a chance of Europe and they'd made it to the FA Cup final. And that, that doesn't happen if you're, if you're not good enough. And, and I think, John, what you're perhaps alluding to, and, 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 and Troy actually alluded to it in the, when we spoke, is that perhaps having got a bit comfortable with, with knowing his best team and picking his, his, his favourites, if you like. Well, Usually in, in the Premier League, or when a manager or a head coach does well, they're being lauded for, for sticking with their team. You know, they've all, this team has only made three changes all season and that's where their consistency is mm. coming from. So I actually have quite a bit of sympathy for, for Javi in that regard. In as much as, excuse me, lads, you proved you can do it. You've beaten some of the best teams in the, in the country. You take a bit of responsibility and I think it's a bit unfair perhaps to point the figure at Javi and say, well, you didn't do enough to, to turn things round when we saw that things weren't going well. And I just wonder whether it's a bit of indictment on, on the players. They know probably that if, if there's a bad run of form, a new head coach is going to come in. Um, and therefore they sort of just wait for that to happen and then they improve. I just can't help but feel that, that it got a bit of a, a raw deal from, from the players. I don't know what, whether that came through at all, Adam, and whether that's something that chimes with you. And I don't know if this is, if this is him being diplomatic, but he didn't mm. seem to suggest that the players had downed tools. I don't think he had that feeling. And, and you're right. He, he spoke about the fact that, yeah, he needed more time. And if you look at it, I mean, this season has been just an absolute mess in terms of the good intentions, buying players and then getting injuries and getting setbacks in key areas of the pitch, i.e. the final third, right from the beginning. Not all of it is 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 anyone's fault. It's just the way that it has fallen. You know, if you sign Saar and Welbeck at the very end of the transfer window, you've been planning for the entire pre-season to go with another plan. It is going to take time. It's going to take longer than four games in the Premier League to get your team right, especially when you've got one of those players who's been playing, i.e. Saar, at the Africa Cup of Nations and deserves a little bit more of a break and a little bit more of a run-in to getting back into to full training and full fitness. So that was sort of happening. You know, he'd come in and played against Coventry, scored a goal. We thought, hang on a minute, we might have a player here. And then subsequently, obviously, under Kike Sanchez-Flores, it didn't quite go to plan. But then you look at Welbeck. He needed time. He had to have time for a slow progression. So essentially, the only improvement that was made, let's not forget, was Craig Dawson. Yeah, you're right. It should have been a good thing that they thought after so many summers where we've we've chopped and changed a little bit too much, we've gone, right, we've got a solid Solid, impressive season. I know it could have been better, but we finished 11th. We reached an FA Cup final. Let's build on that. Let's keep that squad together. We've kept some of our key players. We've not sold Decore. We've not sold Capu. Uh, I think pretty much they're the, the main players. Delafay, you know, he's he's still here as well. So we can build on this. The reflections that I got when Javi left was that that was the wrong decisions. That's what my sort of sources were telling me, that, yeah, maybe we were a little bit too loyal. And that is to both the players and to the head coach as well. And they should have evolved quicker. They should have used it as an opportunity to move on rather than staying still and showing faith in, in the players. But 
I think it's very difficult to to point the finger at at Javi Gracia because he was someone that tried to do the best with the players that he had. And, you know, going back to your original question, John, what he thought was, okay, yes, the cup final did not go well. But what Javi was saying was, sometimes you have to go through the, the depths of despair and bad experiences to come out stronger. The problem is, and this is touching on what Mike said, Yes, when we go to the depths of despair or we have a bad run of form, it does look, we might be wrong, we might be completely wrong, but it does look like the players think, well, yeah, he'll be gone soon and we'll move on to someone else. The problem is we've had a full season, which has almost been like the last four years, but unfortunately we've had three coaches within one season and we haven't reached the end of the season where they could actually go all right fine we've done our job this season we can get rid of him in the summer and we'll get a new one for the next season this has just been one cut after another cut in a in a season whereby they've not responded genuinely to a new head coach coming in apart from Nigel Pearson but at the moment they've just returned back to to where they were and you know you have to start looking at the at, at the players and if it's not just down to the players, then it's the players that are being put onto the pitch, i.e. by the recruitment team. It's just a little bit of a mess all round. And I think it's a real shame because I think there were good signs under under Gracia. But maybe, you know, the Pozzo model isn't built for a coach staying too long. But it clearly wasn't this season. It was great to hear from him. I thought I thought it was lovely to, like you say, Adam, that that overarching feel when you to think about Javi, and, and certainly you don't. That doesn't change reading the article. Is that he's a nice guy who wanted to do his best for Watford. Is disappointed it it didn't turn out as well as it did. And I think it, it, it we we feel the same, don't we? He's a coach we'll have fond memories of. And I think the the really nice bit is that he said he texted Adi Mariapa when he yeah. when he when he scored that own goal against Brighton. And you know, little things like that as a supporter shows that. He cares. He still cares. He's still keeping an eye out for us. And I think that's um, that's the over, uh, overarching thing I take away from that is that uh, Uncle Javi is uh, is as good a guy as we we always thought he was. Yeah, and he might be back for the last couple of games of the season. <laughs> <laughs> We're the Orns. You're the Orns. Come on, you Orns. The other sort of mess that we've had recently, it doesn't feel like a mess in terms of what is affecting on the pitch, is uh, the the signing of Pape Gay, or not signing, or saying that we signed him but then didn't sign him and now he signed for Marseille. You've been following this story, uh, Adam, and, and looking at the detail of it for, for a few months now. Um, mm. Now it's sort of completed because it was quite a high production value video that Marseille put out, not just a, a, an <laughs> image that, that looked quite final. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it, check out the, the Marseille Twitter feed. Has this been a good thing for Watford or how, how can this be a good thing for Watford? Having put out the welcome to Watford tweet, really saying he's our player, but now he isn't even our player out on loan. He is a Marseille player. I don't think it's been a good thing for, for Watford. I think, yeah, primarily because of the fact that they went public with that announcement. I think it's given us a little bit of a window into some of the peripheral transfers that have probably happened in the past with the club that haven't really broken through and we haven't really necessarily been aware of. And we've just thought, oh, well, that's just sort of part of what they do. They've got that complex scouting network and, you know, recruitment network and, and they do these sort of things and they move players here and there and, and wherever. And before it was with Granada, now it's only with Watford and Udinese. 
We've just sort of learnt a bit more about this one, central to what Pap Gay's case is. And there is still things to run on this, by the way. I don't think this is this is finished by any stretch of the imagination. You know, his concern was that he had been signed on a deal back in January by his former agent. He then got a, a new agent who highlighted some what he called irregularities in the contract, which was probably or mainly financial, but also um, down to the fact that Gay was going to be going to Udinese rather than Watford and he wasn't happy with that. And in the article that I did this week for uh, The Athletic, we actually came across some photos of the actual moment that Pap Gay appears to be signing for for Watford with one of uh, Watford's staff and he's holding a Watford shirt with his thumbs up and all this sort of stuff. It look, all looks very amicable and all very happy. Um, but then, you know, in the intervening period, he had a new agent and that seems to have sort of changed the dynamic of the deal. So, look, it's not going to have a direct impact on on our um, options for the rest of this season. It never was. But I think it just gives us an insight into some of the workings of, of uh, the Pozzo model. And, you know, I think people have to make their own conclusions as to whether it reflects well on either the football club on the player, on the agent, and whether it's just another sort of distraction at a time when it would be great if um, if we were just focusing on, on Watford winning games. But it's just a, a sort of a reminder that there's a lot more that happens at football clubs and, and sometimes little flags are stuck in things that they'd probably rather were kept quiet. From the rookery end... Watford do have another game of football to come this Saturday night, glamorous Saturday night, uh, where Watford will be away at Stamford Bridge to take on Frank Lampard's Chelsea. As part of our intelligence gathering, Mike went and had a chat to Liam Toomey, who is the Chelsea correspondent for The Athletic. We recorded it this before they had lost 3-2 away at West Ham. But we asked Liam if there was a chance of Watford getting anything from the trip to Stamford Bridge and how the restart had been going for Chelsea before that West Ham defeat. They were showing signs of stabilising prior to the shutdown and they've managed to maintain that momentum once football's come back, albeit I would say that none of the three performances they've put in so far have been perfect. Um, but they've come out with the win each time and, and that's all that really matters at, at this stage and they're in a good position now in the in the top four race and um, and they're obviously in the FA Cup semi-finals, so they've got plenty to play for in this stretch of the season, which is probably bad news for for a club like Watford and the, the situation that they're in. Well, yeah, because Chelsea are going to they're going to play a big um, big role in this relegation battle, one way or the other, aren't they? They play West Ham and Norwich as as well as Watford, but. I mean, for Watford, Project Restart needs Project Kickstart, really. Is there any hope for Watford on, on Saturday evening at Stamford Bridge? Yeah, I think there is. Um, mainly, the hope is that Chelsea have struggled against teams like Watford at Stamford Bridge all season. Teams that, that come to Stamford Bridge set up in a low block, as Mourinho would call it, you know, lots of bodies around their own penalty area looking to, to sit in, absorb pressure and counter-attack. Chelsea have found that relatively simple strategy very very difficult to break down this season and I've written a piece which will be on the athletic which kind of hints at 
maybe this will be less of a problem for them now that Lampard finally has the full range of his squad to pick from almost for the first time this season. And he's got the ability to make more substitutions, which we saw at half-time in the Leicester game that he took full advantage of. It still remains, I think, that this squad can have moments where it looks really wasteful in the final third and really kind of uninspired in the final third. And they, they can be stifled and they're in lies hope for Watford. What what they can't afford to do, I think, is is a repeat of what they did at, at Vicarage Road, which is kind of only really start to play against Chelsea when they were 2-0 down. And and by then it was it, it was fairly easy for them. How do you manage? You've seen Chelsea with their with their peaks and cro- uh, peaks and troughs, Liam, and, and and different coaches have have managed to turn it around. Frank Lampard seems to have done a good job of that, of sort of galvanising this Chelsea side. They feel like they're at the start of a sort of a resurgence. They're a long way, I think, from from challenging for the Premier League, but it feels like they're at the start of their journey now. How can how have Chelsea done that, and can Watford turn themselves around quick enough to to survive? Do you think? The easiest way to do that is to change coach. Uh, which Chelsea <laughs> That's a good a idea. <laughs> it's slightly reductive to say it, but that that has generally been the mm. way of things at Chelsea. When you start to see performances like that, that performance at Vicarage Road really signalled the beginning of the end for Antonio Conte. I remember that was just around the end of January, start of February, wasn't it? And um, yeah. Chelsea had actually just completed the deal for Olivier Giroud and were actually quite you know, at a club level, quite pleased with themselves at the deal they'd done, and albeit it was far too late to save the season or the Conte reign. Chelsea have managed to to change that trajectory with a bit of distance, I think, with a bit of youth. You know, there's a, there are a lot of young players in this squad that haven't experienced those times, that level of dysfunction, and they've got a, a manager that that really understands the kind of unique culture at Chelsea and and is probably uniquely qualified to 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 navigate it and, and potentially survive it for a little bit longer than some of the managers that have come before him. Um, Do you think that bit of Chelsea DNA in, in Frank really, really helps, Liam? Because I think that's... You'd, we joked about the the turnover of head coaches at Watford and it, and whilst we're kind of used to it and while we kind of do understand the need for this turnover sometimes and it hasn't actually served Watford that badly over the, the course of the, the Pozzo reign... But that, you know, there's that undeniable link between Frank Lampard and uh, and Chelsea and Stamford Bridge. How important is that? And do you think, you know, that that could be something that ultimately is, is Watford's undoing? That lack of continuity is the wrong word, but that, that you know, that real link between the, the head coach and the, and the club itself. I think you have to be careful to go, not to go too far the other way and just appoint someone because they, in, in hashtag, get the club. You know, mm. um, they have to be a good coach, first of all, and they have to be capable of getting the results primarily. But as long as they have those things, if you're also able to offer a deep connection, a deep history with the club and existing relationships with the key decision makers at the highest levels, I think that can only help. And that's what we've seen with Lampard this year. It's been a, quite a strange season to cover from a Chelsea perspective because it's been so quiet off the pitch like there there hasn't been any political infighting there hasn't been anyone briefing against anyone there hasn't been anything really getting out um because everyone wants to see Lampard succeed and he's got pre-existing relationships with Abramovich with Granovskaya obviously with Petr Cech who was his teammate for more than a decade so 
that kind of stuff all helps. Primarily, Lampard knows he'll be judged on results, but the fact that he he has that goodwill, I think, gave him a bit of a leg up, and obviously gave him the job. You know, ahead of mm. some slightly bigger names to begin with, it, it it can't hurt you, but you you still need fundamentally to 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 get the results. Even Lampard would admit, and if you asked, if you were able to ask anyone, it's not easy. But if you're able to ask anyone at the top of Chelsea off the record, they they would say, yeah, this is a transition. We're rebuilding. Um, I think the the transfer ban kind of clarified that for everyone. It was impossible for Chelsea to strengthen last summer beyond converting Mateo Kovacic's loan into a permanent deal. So they they knew that they would kind of be pos- almost postponing the rebuild um, until this summer. And then, of course, the pandemic hits. But what, what Lampard has managed to do well to put them in a good position is empower this group of academy players and Christian Pulisic to really establish themselves and, and form the core of what looks like quite an exciting young Chelsea team now to build around. And you add Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech to that. And it's clear this club is on an upward trajectory again. Um, but I think what you saw even before last summer was that Chelsea were taking a step back anyway um, because they knew they were going to lose Eden Hazard at some point. He he always wanted to go to Real Madrid. And the the bad decisions that they'd made in the transfer market had kind of set the team back around him. It was kind of a mini, almost a mini version of what we're seeing with Barcelona and Lionel Messi right now, where one mm. exceptional player has to carry steadily more and more of the load as the team gets worse around him. So Chelsea were overdue this rebuild. But the promising thing for them as a club is it looks like they might be in a position now to execute it quite quickly. We're going to try and hire you as a double agent for a, for a second, Liam. We're going to stick you in the dressing room with, with Nigel Pearson for, and the team for five and ten minutes before kick-off. What would you tell them? How would you, t- how would you, uh, what would you tell them to, to help them get a result? What should be their game plan on, uh, on Saturday evening? I think if you look at the blueprint of how Chelsea have been beaten this season, I think you would probably say sit in for the first 20, 30 minutes try and focus on not letting Chelsea get any sort of attacking rhythm. If that involves spoiling, kind of slowing down the game, committing fouls, wasting a bit of time, then by all means do that. We can do that. Then by all means do that. And then gradually try and build yourself into the game. And probably in the in the second half, last 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, when Chelsea are, are kind of losing confidence in their own ability to generate ideas that's when you can go go forward and steal a goal or steal steal a couple of goals even as we've seen a couple of teams do at Stamford Bridge this year and come out with with a win you know it is very very possible to beat this Chelsea team they're vulnerable at the back they do make mistakes and they have a goalkeeper in Kepper that has not inspired confidence this year least of all in his own manager so they haven't looked infallible. If you can get yourself off to a, to a decent start, keep yourself in the game, any team in the Premier League could beat this Chelsea team on their day. We'll, we'll allow you to go back to see to see Frank now. Who who are you going to tell <laughs> Frank Lampard to, to worry about from the um, from the Watford side of things? I know you don't follow Watford that closely, of course, but who who would you think is, is most likely to make an impact from a Watford point of view, particularly against yeah, Chelsea? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I watched. I, I haven't watched Watford a lot, but I did watch a little bit of that Southampton game. And while it wasn't happy viewing for Watford generally, I did think there was some still some very nice flashes from Troy Deeney. Um, and I, I do think he's an, he's an underrated player around the Premier League in terms of how effective he can be as a target man. He's kind of, he's a similar sort of player in my mind to, to like an Olivier Giroud. 
mm. in that his link up and hold up play is very underrated. His awareness of runners around him and ability to find them is is not probably as appreciated outside of Watford as it should be. And he's also a big physical guy who can bully centre backs. And you look at the likes of um, Andreas Christensen and. Depending on which other centre-back starts, it'll probably be Antonio Rudiger. Those defenders can be muscled around a little bit, and, and I think Dini is very capable of doing that. So if if I were Chelsea, I would be most worried about trying to stop him because he has the ability to get all of Watford's attack humming. We're the Orns, you're the Orns. Come on, you Orns! We'll see what happens uh, at Stamford Bridge. But, uh, but Adam, you've got a piece coming out uh, Friday on The Athletic about Troy Deeney and his sort of what he, can, what he contributes to the Watford team. Yeah, I, I just wanted to have a look in, in terms of the statistics at his sort of his output for this season, but also try and sort of put his game into a little bit of, of context. And I, and I spoke to Nigel Pearson about it and he said that, you know, it is actually a very complex question as to where Troy's game is at the moment. And, you know, he said that it, it needs to be judged on a performance-by-performance performance basis at the moment, rather than sort of analysing too much about where he goes from here or where he's come from and things like that. It, it's a strange situation and we have to just sort of go, right, well, let's get through the next game and get through the next game. Uh, unfortunately, and this isn't, you know, a criticism of Troy directly, I think... You know, Watford have, as we know, come to rely on him far too much. And, you know, there is the question of whether he's, he is actually sort of driving the team forward, especially when there's no crowd and he's not getting any feedback from, you know, from, um, crowd noise and things like that. Is he, is he actually driving the team forward or in what he offers on the pitch? Is he actually holding, holding the side back? And I, and I was just look, sort of looking at the statistics, um, highlighting obviously that he's, he's very good in the air. Whilst he is good in the air, that is also a, a bit of a problem because when things aren't going to plan, we sort of fall back into that default setting of going, oh, well, Troy's good in the air. Let's just lump it forward to him. And I don't think this season, the players either side of him, especially now, you know, Gerard Delefeu isn't there, have had a synergy whereby him winning the ball in the air leads to either one of them actually getting in behind. And I think you sort of, you have to go back to the partnerships that he's had in the past where that's where he works best with with Vidra, with Igalo, last season with uh, Delafeu. I think it just works better when he's got a partnership and there is a little bit more clarity as to the point of what he's doing. You know, it's difficult. It's difficult to sort of talk about someone who is held in such high regard by the football club and is clearly someone that has done a lot for the football club. But it, it gets to the point where you go, well, it's not the main reason why we're in the problems uh, that we are at the moment but it is one of the issues that hasn't been dealt with it's it's the 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 thorn that hasn't been grasped if that's the if that's the right saying with that adam yeah and his slight limitations that you you you've been investigating do you think on on saturday we're going to see any tinkering from nigel in terms of that starting lineup is he going to be daring enough i don't think there's anything that he could really change that would make a massive amount of difference. What I would like to have seen, you know, throughout the course of this season is for, for Dini and Welbeck to have had an opportunity to see if there was a partnership there, because I think that would have taken us forward. And it would have given us an opportunity to see 
if there was someone else apart from Troy Deeney that we can rely upon to score goals on a regular basis. And I know that Gerard Delefeu did that, especially last season, and did it, you know, this season when we needed him when Deeney was out. But I think the, the next step for the football club is to find someone that you can go, oh, well, if Deeney's missing, it doesn't matter because we've got him, to actually sort of still have that physicality up top. So if you do still want the ball to be held up in a front three or in a two, then a player can still do that. And Danny Welbeck can do that. He can actually, you know, win headers and win flick-ons and, and things like that. He's a different player, but, you know, there are similarities in what he can offer. I think what has been, you know, interesting this season is sort of, looking over the, the fence into La Liga and seeing a, a couple of players that Watford probably could have had available this season if they'd wanted to change things up. But they obviously decided, as we were talking about with Javi Gracia, that they didn't want to do. The likes of Cucho Hernandez or Luis Suarez. They have brought in João Pedro and I thought he was the only crumb of comfort in the game against Southampton because he was a player that came on when it was an absolute mess where they were just sort of like, yeah, just go up front or just defend a little bit, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And he came in and he was sniffing around when the ball was in the air. He was making little darts in behind. He was looking for the ball. And I thought that that was actually something to, to, to look forward to seeing more of. I just feel a little bit sorry for him that he's not coming to a football club in a more stable environment. And that goes for Ishmael Asar as well. I think, you know, his frustrations are, you know, very, very clear when there is no crowd in the stadium because you can you can hear him yelping and screaming in his own disappointment a lot of the time. Um, and there is this sort of perception that footballers make mistakes and they just sort of, it's water off a duck's back. But you can see how much he actually wants to succeed and it's just not going to plan for him at the moment. The, the, the hope is that like the, you know, the game against Liverpool, things will click on one of these key games that we've got coming up. Obviously, they have to beat Norwich. If they don't beat Norwich, you deserve to go down. Obviously, we've seen what Newcastle have done at Bournemouth. They could quite easily come to Vicarage Road and do that to us. But we have to get something from, at the very least, Newcastle. We have to get at least a point. We have to beat Norwich. And then we have to go and not lose against West Ham. So that's that's it. I mean, we've we've burnt through three games that we could have got wins in and we probably should have got wins in. I mean, maybe we, sh we should actually not be budgeting for points against Southampton because they're a far better outfit than we are at the moment. I've basically talked about every other game apart from Chelsea, which is the most important one. <laughs> I don't blame um, you. And I, but I, I go back to last season, and this, this goes back to what Javi Gracia um, was talking about towards the end of last season. It wasn't as bad as everyone made out. I remember sitting there, I was working for Talk Sport, I think, on that day, watching the game against Chelsea. That first half, we were so good. Dini had that wonderful header that was heading into the top corner and Aspilicueta saved it. Uh, I think Decore had a really good opportunity. I think there was a few others as well. And then obviously we crumbled in the second half. But we could, with spirits high, go to Chelsea and do something. I just fear that if Southampton, who are a very good technical side, can move the ball and cut through us like a hot knife through butter, then I fear that Chelsea's pace up top will do exactly the same thing. I might be wrong, but that is my fear. If Southampton can do it, then I'm pretty sure Chelsea will be able to cut through us. We will see what happens on Saturday night, live. <laughs> a lot to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, it might not be. But there's no pub to go to. Oh, no, actually, if it goes really bad, we can go to the pub and have a few misery drinks. Thanks very much, Adam, for your time. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, look forward to having your misery drinks on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much, Mike. 
Look, I'm positive now. It's all we can be now. Is we've got nothing left but um, possibly misplaced positivity. I hope they've used this week to uh, have a chat amongst themselves, have an inward look. Um, we, it's been grim, but now it's, it's time just to crack on. We've got no other option. Uh, we're going to have to pull a surprise from somewhere, I think, if we're going to going to stay in the Premier League. Why can't it happen on Saturday night at, yeah. at Stamford Bridge? Come on, you horns! Yeah.